0: Uh, my name is Charles Kaiser. I work with a ministry called Mission Alive. It's a church planting ministry. And um, I'm also a church planter. About 10 years ago, my family and I and a team of people. One of my, one of my teammates from the early days is in the back of the room today, Ryan Porsche. Uh, we moved to the downtown Dallas area to start the Storyline Christian Community. And um, Mission Alive to this day is about church planting, especially at the margins. Um, we're talking about finding God at the margins today. And uh, so this is, a, this is a favorite topic of mine. I'm excited to explore it. Uh, let me pray and we'll, we'll go forward together. Oh Lord God, uh, we thank you for your presence in us and among us by your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to be a conversation partner here with us, to, uh, to form us more deeply into the image of Jesus, to give us vision and wisdom to see your work in this world, um, and to give us courage um, to join you, to follow you, to participate in what you're doing all around us for your glory, and for the renewal of all things. In Christ I pray. Amen. 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 All right. Uh, Um Umkataba. Umkataba is a sweet woman. I met Um Umkataba about three or four years ago. Um, She's rather short. She's probably in her 50s or early 60s. Um, She is an Iraqi woman. I met her in the Vickery Meadow neighborhood of Dallas, which is where the IRC locates lots of refugee families. Um, DFW, I want to say, is in the top one or two metropolitan areas for uh, for refugee relocation in in the United States. Uh, there's a big neighborhood with, I mean, thousands and thousands of apartment apartments and apartment communities. And uh, we were uh, getting involved in the Vickery neighborhood through a, uh, an initiative called uh, the Stew Pot. Vickery translation, uh, not the Stew Pot, the Lucky Pot. Uh, they, uh, and they called it the Lucky Pot from Potluck in that it was a, a community initiative where they wanted to, rather than just seeing the refugee families as someone that they could serve and try to help. They really wanted to draw out what are the assets, what are the real gifts, um, what are the, the amazing things that, that these folks from all over the world uh, bring. And so they would create these Lucky Pot uh, kinds of encounters where they would have music from all over the world and they'd make food and share it from all over the world. Um, they, would, they would have artists make art and hang them up in, um, in galleries throughout the Vickery neighborhood. I mean, the most amazing and talented people. So we met Umkataba in the midst of this because she was um, an artist and a vendor herself. Because one of the initiatives was, not only do you show your art, but you can, you can sell stuff that you make at these uh, translation events. Um, and she was very kind. Um uh, in Arabic means mother. So kateba is the name of her oldest son. It's customary if you're the mama. Um, you're, the way you're referred to is, well, I'm the mother of my oldest. So Um kateba. And she really was a mother. You know, she was a uh, very maternal kind of figure in this uh, in this neighborhood, and she was so kind to us immediately. I remember before she ever met my wife, um, and, and she's living on pennies. Um, she, she gives me this wonderfully crafted flower um, that's made out of tissue paper that really looks like a real flower um, uh, until you get up close to it. And she said, this is for you. I want you to give this to your wife. Um, just those little acts of hospitality and generosity well, something started to happen over time with Um-Kateba. Um She was like connected to this underground um, network of relationships. Somehow, anybody moving to the states from Iraq, she knew. She knew them. She, she found out that they were coming. So I, she had some back-channel way of knowing if Iraqis were moving into the neighborhood. And she took it upon herself to welcome them into the neighborhood and to make sure that they got connected to the services they needed, to job opportunities. And because we're um, getting to know Um Umkateba, she's introducing all of these brand new Iraqi uh, refugees to us as well. We probably met 30 people and made friends with 30 people because of Um Umkateba. And, you know, I see... uh, I see Umkataba, and I can't help but to see the the you know she's a very devoted Muslim woman. Um, she says her prayer, says her prayers regularly. Um, she is uh, she um, helps folks in need because of out of devotion for her faith, you know, out of um, adherence to Islam. And and yet I see in her this this really radical beautiful. Generosity, not unlike the fellow yesterday, Jeff, who talked about Wilma, who, um, though she didn't have very much, she was living on pennies herself. She was still welcoming other kiddos into her house and taking care of them. Uh, I I saw God in Um and that mouse might sound strange to say because she's a Muslim woman, you know, she's not a Jesus follower necessarily. But it was, it was hard for It didn't fit my categories, right? Of what the other, the non-Christian, the non-religious kind of looks like. Um, I found God at the margins in the generosity and hospitality of Uncateba. And so today, um, what I want to talk about is how do we know? How do we know that that's... How, do, how is it appropriate? How do we know it's appropriate to have language uh, for speaking about those kind of encounters... Um, as if we're encountering God in those margins, in those places. And the language of margins that I'm using is a, its a spatial metaphor, so margins is in relation to the center. Um, the center is often a place of power or privilege or comfort or security. It's a place of control and pre- predictability a lot of times. Um, it's a place of similarity a lot of times. Uh, margins would be um, the opposite of that, um, out of power, um, unpredictable, hard to control, um, socially socially, uh, socially, different from us. And all of us have our own centers. At somebody's center is always somebody else's margin. So all of us socially find ourselves in, in different margins. So what does it mean in these places that are commonly difficult for us? because they challenge us, they're cross-cultural sometimes, and margins can be religious, they can be racial, they can be sexual, they can be uh, economic, they can, they can have any different kind of flavor. Um, so what, what does it look like for us to navigate those margins and expect, not, not just to expect that they'd be a mess or hard or difficult, but to expect at the margins to discover and encounter God. Uh, Yesterday, I narrated through some experiences that were attention-getters for me, um, where I found myself at the margins for me and for our community, and we explored and experienced the presence of God um, in ways that exploded our categories and surprised us. So we narrated through some of those experiences. Today, I want to talk about Theological convictions that underpin this idea or concept or thought of finding God at the margins. What does scripture say about finding God at the margins? What kind of expectation does the story of God create that we would you know, find God uh, at the margins? And then tomorrow, we'll talk through practices at the margins. What are, what are suggestions? What are practical ways... To engage folks at the margins in ways that are helpful and healthy and good, and and do genuinely lead us to experience and encounter um, God's work there. Um, so, let me start and just open it up to you all. What uh, as you think about finding God at the margins, and as you think about your Bible, um, what what scriptures for you? Come to mind if you were teaching this class, y'all give me some fodder so I'll know what to say, right? Uh, what what scriptures come to mind for you that you would point to um, in the story of God as evidence that God is at work at the margins? You were hungry and you
1: fed me. I right, was hungry and you
0: fed me. Matthew twenty-five. Yeah, the least. The least of these? Oh, that's good.
2: How about the story of the Good Samaritan?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, y'all are going to test my Bible knowledge here. <laughs> <laughs> it's in, uh, we'll say it's in Luke. I can't remember what chapter. Luke, is, it, true. is it 15? I don't know. I think it's 10. Yeah, I think it's 10. Yeah. Okay. Well, it could be somewhere between 10 and 15. <laughs> 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 okay, it's in the Bible. That's right. Yeah. It's in the Bible. So, good, what about the good Samaritan makes you think of the margins?
2: Well, I was going to mention it. Um, he was—he was not Jewish, and he, he helped a Jew. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of like us saying, "Okay, this this, it, this Muslim helped a Christian." Yes. Which means similar.
0: That's right. Analogy. So it's not only—it's not that uh, um, the Samaritan is the one being served and helped. In the name of God, by the good guys, it's here. Is this culturally different person that's often culturally despised by Jewish folks, and God is at work mm-hmm. through this person, um, and and He's at work through this person when He wasn't through the supposed good guys mm-hmm. that passed by the guy who's been beaten on the road. Yeah, it's a that's a very subversive story. It
2: is a
0: woman caught in adultery. Woman caught in adultery. John <coughs> eight. Okay. Woman at the well. And a Samaritan.
2: And a woman. And a
0: woman. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is crossing all kinds of boundaries um, in these <coughs> stories. We well,
2: can throw
0: Zacchaeus up there too. Zacchaeus, yeah. yeah. Luke 19. That's one of my favorites.
1: I think the Acts in the Ethiopian
0: unit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Acts ten. Acts ten. Mm-hmm. What in what in Acts ten are you thinking? Are you thinking Cornelius and Peter? Yes. yes. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm gonna tell that story in a minute. I like that one. Acts is it Acts eight? The Ethiopian.
3: Yeah.
0: Cornelius. Yes. Woo! Those are great stories.
2: Or even Saul becoming Paul. <laughs>
0: Even Saul, yeah, so becoming
1: Jesus. Paul, yes. And Acts 2, or something another.
3: Uh-huh. They held everything in common, and there were many different uh, mm-hmm. oh. types of people there. Different cultures. Yeah.
0: yeah. Pentecost for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, yeah, that's the founding event for that experience. That's good. Mm-hmm. Acts 4, where they settled everything so that they could help us in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All yeah. were one in heart and mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No one claimed to
1: give his possessions as his own. Mm-hmm. That's Very good.
0: good. Uh, y'all are y'all are fans of the Gospels? <laughs> you're fans of Acts as good Church of Christ folks? <laughs> <laughs> assuming you're Church of Christ folks? Uh, yeah, that's good. That's great. Great grounding. That's a great start. In all of those uh, stories and examples, we see how God is at work um, can I at the margins. The Old Testament. Okay. Um, Old Testament.
2: Yeah. that, shoot the. You sure we can use David's that? David's second wife. What's that? The, I can't remember her name. Bishop. David's second wife. Oh. David's oh. second wife. Was her name. Oh. Was no. No. That was his first. <laughs> The one, the one who saved him from her husband, killed yes. Machabe. Oh. Mac- 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 no, 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 Mac- no. Mac- her husband. I feel so embarrassed I that I can't remember his name. T- t- no, no. Tell me the, Michael,
3: s- tell me the story. story. The story was
2: David and his band of outlaws were were taking, kind of watching out for this man's flock and his shepherds, and then they asked for some food and the and the and the husband of this woman said no mm-hmm. and so she and and so then david was going to kill them all and so she went out yeah. in between david and her husband and and uh Mie. Mie that's, Mie. That's, that's Mie. she sent food and i right. think it's, her name starts with an m if
3: i remember correctly i, her I name starts start with an m name. abigail abigail abigail, abigail,
2: abigail. 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 Yeah. If Rebecca was here, she would have remembered. That's good. That
0: makes me think of... Um, uh, there's, just so, the, there's so
2: much out of out of culture that happened yeah. there. Yeah.
0: Well, and there's that makes me think, too, of kind of Ruth's role. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ruth... And Esther. Um, yeah. Na- you know, Ruth is the... It's Ruth, right? Or is it Naomi who's out of... Who's that? Naomi, who's kind yes. of out of water culturally. Yeah, your people yeah. will be my people. Yes. Naomi God, my well, the, Yeah, Naomi
2: was mother. Ruth is the daughter. Ruth was the
0: daughter. Ruth was the Moabite. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And somehow this gal on the margins, you know, is she's in the genealogy. She's in the line of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's part of the story. She's mm-hmm. not. She's uh. She's not just um an outsider appreciating the story like. She's in on the action. Like mm-hmm. God is integrating folks at the margins into the work that he's doing in the world.
2: In fact, almost we every single one, one of the women that are in David's or in mm-hmm. Jesus's genealogy yeah. are out are margin women. Mm-hmm. Rahab, yeah. Tamar, mm-hmm. Tamar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bathsheba. That's telling.
1: And even Mary in a way mm-hmm. because Mary, she mm-hmm. is yes. married and not
0: married. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I love it. I love it. I'm going to use this. What? Let's talk about all these passages now. There's your next book. Yeah, there you go. Right. Credit to AC 270 at the Pepperdine Harbor 2018.
1: Well, you can you can develop this for 2019. There you go.
0: Right on. Women and everything. That's great. So what I want to do is I want to zoom out a little bit and. Um, it, it accounts for these stories and texts that are on the ground of Scripture. I want to zoom out and think in theological theme. Think in, in big theological pictures about, <coughs> um, about what's going on in these stories and, and even to think about how these themes connect to what you all have mentioned happening in these stories in the Gospels and the Old Testament and in Acts. Um, the first theme that I want to talk about is called Missio Dei. Um, Missio Dei is Latin for, it's really complicated, the mission of God. Missio is also a Latin word for sending, the sending of God, the mission of God in the world. Um, And this doctrine or idea is really a, it comes out of the doctrine of the Trinity Um, more more than anything. The doctrine of, Father and Son and Holy Spirit and their activity in the world. Um, in in the missio day, God the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and the Father and Son and the Spirit together send the Church into the world. Um, and what's significant? Um, the first the first reason this is this doctrine is significant is because it dislocates the mission from the church in a really good way. In that, the mission of God is not the property of the church. <clears throat> the mission of God is not is not a program of the church, like an add-on. Like, well, if we get the time and the budget, we can have an evangelism ministry or a social justice ministry, as, as if it is in the purview of of the church or ecclesiology to do the mission. Missio Dei says, no, the mission is part of the very nature and character of God. It flows out of God himself, Father and Son sending the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit sending the church into the world. Now, the big-time implication of this doctrine and the way that it's developed over time is to say that, yes, God does engage the church on his mission? It is a primary agent of the mission of God, but the church belongs to the mission. The church exists because of the mission rather than the mission existing because of the church. Do you see how that's significant it it turns it on its head it's the, the church is derivative of the mission. The church comes out of the mission. The church belongs to and gets to be part of the mission rather than having some uh, uh, colonial possession of it. Oh, yeah, we'll just go out and do our mission thing because um, we, we kind of own and control that. Well, no, we don't. The Holy Spirit of God and the Father and the Son are in charge of the mission. The Holy Spirit is the primary missionary in the world. And so the mission is not predictable. And also, the mission is not simply um, just in the church. Um, The mission of God does not occur only in and through the church. It happens primarily. The the church is a primary agent. Uh, I don't want to lose that because I believe in the church. I'm a church planner, for goodness sake. But the church, God in the Holy Spirit, in the Missio Dei, is on mission in the world beyond the church, ahead of the church. Um, if you want to think about scriptural grounding, First um, Corinthians, and I encourage you to, if you got Bibles, if you want to turn in your phone, if you can turn in your phone to your Bible, or if you have a paperback, you know, we're gonna do some Bible study along the way. Um, so I encourage you to tune in with us that way, because I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to just make this stuff up. <laughs> So there's this great text, the resurrection text in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's talking about um, resurrection and Christ being raised. And he he starts talking about how this makes sense in the end of things. In verse 25, he says, For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. So there's a lot in that little verse. So by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus... Is he's raised from the dead. He is enthroned at the right hand of God, and he is made the Lord and the King of the earth. Right? He is the first fruits of the new creation. Christ must reign. Jesus reigns even now over the whole earth. Okay? That's happening. That was, that's done. We believe that. Um, in in faith as followers of Jesus. That's a part of our story. Now, if that is true, that Jesus reigns over all creation, uh, it makes sense to say that the Spirit of Jesus, who reigns over all creation, is at work in all creation, even beyond the church. Uh, The Spirit of God is at work in the world. You know what's really interesting? Uh, there's a, there's these fascinating texts in uh, in Amos, and I'm not going to turn there, but you can write it down and look at it. Oh yeah, I can't help it. I got to. Um, Amos chapter nine. 1 Corinthians what? First Corinthians fifteen twenty five.
3: Fifteen twenty five.
0: Amos chapter nine. And this is... So this is pre-Jesus narrative. Um, Amos chapter 9, verse 7. uh, And God is not too happy with Israel right now, so that's part of the context. But he says to Israel, Are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians? Asked the Lord. I brought out Israel out of Egypt, but I also brought the Philistines from Crete. And led the Arameans out of Ker. Whoa, wait a minute. So you're telling me there are more Exoduses than we get in the story of Scripture. God has done exoduses with other people besides Israel. Um How
1: do you know that? I mean, it, yeah, this says he brought Philistines from Crete. Yep. But how do we know it's an Exodus?
0: Nine. Well, so the, so the very Seven. I'm using the, the term Exodus in turn. I mean, the, the word Exodus means brought out. So, he, the, it, embedded in the language of this text is, I exodus the Philistines. I Exodus the Arameans. Like, he's deliberately saying, there are other nations outside of yourselves that are important to me because I am Lord God over all creation. And I care about all of my people in the world. I am I care about delivering all of creation because the Spirit of God and the mission of God is at work in all of creation, even beyond the people of God. In this case, Israel. In our case, the church. Um, Peter and Cornelius. You mentioned, sir, that story from Acts right. 10 yeah. and 11. Now that's a trip. Cause Peter is at his friend's house, and where is he? In Joppa,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's praying, and he he kind of gets a trance vision thing going on, and he sees this blanket coming down from the sky, and he sees all kinds of you know hoofed, unclean animals <coughs> on it, and he hears this voice: "Here, take and kill and eat." And he's thinking, I'm not doing that. Right. I've read my Bible. Mm-hmm. That's against the rules. Yeah. That's not. That's not. Uh, that's not the law according to the rules. I, I can't do that. Peter, take and kill and eat what God says is clean is clean. And Peter's like, huh, that is the strangest vision that I could have had um, on this afternoon. He also gets a sense that hey, um, some folks are going to be <coughs> coming to you. And um, you need to go with him. Well, sure enough, as he Peter's having this trance, um, Cornelius, who is a God fearer, so he's a Jewish guy. Uh, he's a Roman soldier, Roman officer. Uh, he he gives to the poor. He um, he follows Jewish customs. He he cares about God. He worships God. He prays. Well, Cornelius is praying, and he gets word from. The Spirit, as he's praying, he gets word from the Spirit. The Spirit of God reveals himself to this non-Jewish guy. A guy at the margins, outside of the box of the Jewish people, reveals himself to this guy in prayer and says, hey, you need to go see this guy, Peter. I think he's going to have something for you. Cornelius is like, okay, I'm in. So he sends these guys. Right about the time Peter's having this vision, like, hey, you need to welcome these guys and you need to go with them. So they knock on the door. Um, we're here. Cornelius sent us. Is there Peter here? Feel like we need to talk? Yep. Yeah, we've got to go. So they go up. And is it, it's Caesarea Maritima, where Cornelius is sent from. They go up to Caesarea Maritima, And Peter comes to Cornelius' household. And he knows he's a god fear by this point. And um, Jewish folk do not go into non-Jewish folk's houses. You just don't do that. That's a that's a boundary. That is a that's a no no. That's against the Bible. And here the Spirit is challenging Peter's reading of the Bible. Go figure. Um, so he's like, well, hey, we we have you know, we believe in God. We we care about uh, God. We feel like you have something for us, and it seems like there's some purpose in you being here. Will you come and speak to us? And so Peter. Makes his way, I'm sure, in fear and trembling into this household, and there are just gobs of people there. Cornelius, uh, maybe some of his co workers, his family members, the uh, household workers, they're all there together, and Peter starts to talk about the story of God in Jesus. And he tells them all these things about how Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, um, and that he's Lord. Uh, and he gets to the end of his sermon, and these folks start talking in different languages. Um, not unlike what happened at Pentecost. Yep. And Peter was like, he, Peter, he was there at Pentecost. He's like, Now, this is weird. What, th- this is exploding his categories, right? Yep. I did not expect for this to happen. I mean, God is up to something here, and I need to catch up. Because he's already doing something in the midst of these folks' lives. And Peter's like, this is a no-brainer. I mean, they received the Spirit just the same way we did at Pentecost. We better baptize them and get them on board. Because God is welcoming non-Jewish folks into the kingdom. You see the way the Holy Spirit was at work in the world, ahead of the church, in the lives of Cornelius. And he's inviting the church to discover that. Even in unexpected places, he had to do some, some kind of bizarre and out-of-the-ordinary things to get their attention about that. But that is a function of the—that's God in the Missio Dei uh, case study number one. I mean, that is—that's that is, that's a, a prime example of how the Holy Spirit uh, and Jesus who reigns over all creation is at work ahead of us in the world. Um, it connects to a doctrine in pneumatology, which is the study of the spirit, which is what Harvard's kind of themed over this uh, this week, um, called prevenient grace. Anybody heard of prevenient grace? Uh, look at John chapter 16. Verse 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking in His farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. Um, he's with His disciples. Um, and He says, but in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Jesus is speaking in red letters. Because if I don't, the Advocate, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send Him to you. So here's the whole Father and Son sending the Spirit into the world thing. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So Jesus is going to send the Spirit. Spirit will indwell the church. Another function of the Spirit is that he'll convict the world. The Spirit will be at work in the hearts of folks in the world um, preveniently, ahead ahead of time. In their hearts, ahead of the church, ahead of their inclusion into the people of God, the Spirit's out there prepping them, getting them ready, opening their minds and their hearts to the grace of God, to, to the challenge of the gospel, um, to, uh, to their brokenness and the way that they need to give their lives over to God. So this idea of prevenient grace, I think it's a, it's a subset. It's a function of the Holy Spirit. In the missio dei, in the mission of God, in the world, y'all following me? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the first one. Man, I'm not going to get through two of these. Mm-hmm. It's already after two thirty. I just get excited. Okay, the second theological conviction uh, I call incarnation. You're probably all familiar with incarnation. Literally, um, in carn flesh in flesh Munt, God in the flesh. Incarnation is God taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. God becoming a human. John 1, 14, love Eugene Peterson's um, translation or paraphrase. He said, The Word came flesh. Jesus, God and Jesus became flesh and moved into our neighborhood." love that so Jesus comes to us so at a big picture think about this God in heaven God of the universe does not require his creation does not require humanity to figure out how to get to him God does not require humanity to figure out the path to get to the center from the margins, as it were. Uh, God in Jesus goes, comes to us. God in Jesus goes to the margins. God in Jesus leaves the comfort of heaven and the, the bliss of eternal communion in the divine family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and moves into our neighborhood, comes to be with us where we are, on our terms, in our neighborhood. God in Christ comes to the margins. And I I love the way that uh, Philippians 2 puts this. Philippians chapter 2, especially uh, the the New Living Translation. Check this. This is this well-known early hymn that finds its way into uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi that he helped start with Lydia. Um, Though Jesus was God, verse 6 of chapter 2, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Man! Jesus gives up his privilege and moves to the margin. This is, this is the, the, the logic of the incarnation. Jesus gives up his privilege and he relocates. He takes on Humanity. He becomes a human being. He becomes a servant, a slave. He humbles himself. He get he goes outside of himself. He leaves divine privilege. Uh, and not only do we see God uh, in this big picture level in in Christ, kind of uh, moving toward the margins in the incarnation. We also see, as all of you have pointed out in the ministry of Jesus Jesus consistently hangs out at the margins and his ministry was a ministry at the margins you think about his table ministry in the gospel of Luke uh, he's doing some really radical things um, because he's, breaking, he's crossing boundaries he's, he's going to places of, of difference and of, of margin um, because that is where God is at work it's at work because Jesus is going there, but it's also God's also at work there because he he finds God there when he goes there. Um, Luke chapter five is one of my favorite favorite stories uh, about, um, and this this influenced influenced a lot of our uh, methodology in the early days of storyline. Uh, it's the story of Levi, and Levi is a tax collector he is on a social margin because he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised because they were viewed as traitors. You know, they had a foot in the Roman Empire and they were benefiting financially from that and they were doing so at the expense of Jewish folks who were having to pay those taxes. And not only that, they were at least stereotypically dishonest. They would, you know, they would only be required to get them to pay let's say a hundred dollars in taxes but they would bump it up you know 200 bucks and take the cut take the extra and get very wealthy off of that and so levi the name levi it's a jewish name he's a jewish guy but he's very much socially at the margin he's also uh, ironically he's very wealthy likely Uh, so uh, we talked yesterday about how wealthy folks can be at the margins too um, not only because they're different from us, but in the kingdom, uh, wealthy folks, affluent folks, uh, have challenges in connecting to God. I mean, Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, it's almost harder for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Rich young ruler story, have all these encounters. But, but this is who Jesus goes to. Uh, the, this wealthy, socially ostracized guy is not a lost cause. For Jesus, he, he sees him at his tax booth. And he strikes up a conversation with him. And Levi does what you would do if you made a new friend. He says, hey, I'm having a party. It's going to be an awesome <clears throat> party. We'll have fine drinks and food. It'll be a, a great time. Um, I, I want you to meet my friends. All my other tax collector buddies. And again, socially, culturally, uh, these are the, the seedy, shady folks, the sinful people that that Jesus is a major teacher, he's a rabbi um, uh, rabbis would not normally associate with the Levites of the world and yet Jesus accepts his invitation, he goes to his house, again he does the thing that Peter had so much trouble doing in Acts 10, he goes to his house and he shares table with him, he's crossing all of these um, religious and social boundaries to do so, and and what else happens but the religious folk catch wind of it and they go nuts. Oh, this God. is not decorous, you know. This is not proper. This is not appropriate. This is not look above reproach. Not only that, you're violating any number of ritual purity laws by doing this. <clears throat> Jesus said, "I didn't come for people who think they're he- who think they're healthy and well." I came for folks who are sick. Why, why wouldn't I go to this place of all places? And you see Jesus engaging the margins. He's going... Uh, it's the microcosm of the big picture of what's happening in the incarnation. He's going to the margins. Um, another story in Matthew 8 of the Roman centurion. So this is a story about a guy who is not Jewish... Who, he's also a powerful guy. He leads a lot of men. Uh, uh, he, he has lots of power and influence. And he gets word uh, from an emissary of this centurion uh, that uh, he's got a kiddo that's sick. I'd like to see you. And Jesus comes to him and he says, Hey, I, I'm. let's go to this place. And the centurion stops him and says, You know, I know how authority works. Uh, I have lots of men, and when I tell them to do something, they do it. And I, I believe you have authority. Uh, all you have to do is say the word. You don't even need to make the trip. You can say the word, and my kid will be healed. And Jesus said, Wow, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. You see Jesus in this experience? He is he's encountering God himself at the margins. Wow, look at this centurion. I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. Mm-hmm. And of course, your kiddo will be made well. And he uses the very authority that this centurion so faithfully believes in and trusts in. Um, he's finding God. At the margins. So we see in different ways how incarnation shows us this move of God um, toward the margins and even ways that we find God because of that move at the margins when we when we go there. Okay. Um, the third theological conviction or theme. Common grace. This falls under the doctrine of creation, uh, theology of creation, and the general idea of common grace. It's common grace in contrast or um, in conjunction with uh, or as opposed to redeeming grace. So redeeming grace would be the grace we receive from God in the person and work of Jesus common grace is the creative grace that God infuses the world with when he creates the world Uh, Isaiah when he sees God in his fullness in Isaiah 6 um, and he sees uh, the angels worshiping God and he recalls their song holy, holy, holy the whole earth is filled With your glory. The whole earth. Is filled. With your glory. Uh, Why is that so? Well. It's because God created. The whole earth. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. Paul says. Quoting Psalm 24-ish. There is. The glory of God. Um, all over the earth, all over the world. We see the footprints. We see the grace. We see the the brilliance of God all over the world. Add to that, that um, in the Genesis story, God creates humanity in God's image, right? Male and female together reflect the image of God. They reflect the purposes of God. They reflect the nature of God. They're junior partners of God in creation. Uh, And so you put all that together. So what does common grace have to do with God's work at the margins? Well, if the world is filled with the glory of God, if it bears the, um, the fingerprints of its maker, if humanity is made in the image of God, it shouldn't surprise us if we see God all over the place. It makes it really hard to sustain a distinction, to sustain a distinction between sacred and secular. To say this is sacred space and all that out there, that's secular. That's secular music or secular people or secular institution. Uh, if the glory of God fills the whole earth, it's really hard to sustain that distinction. That, that's not to say that everybody gives allegiance to God or cares about the glory of God. Um, but we can find the sacred in the mundane, in the most unexpected places because the glory of God fills, the whole earth and I would submit. You know, some might retort and say, "Oh, Charles, all of that got messed up when Adam and Eve sinned, when they fell in the garden. They they so uh, badly damaged creation, and theologians, some theologians would say they marred the image of God in themselves, almost unrecognizably so, so that we are totally depraved." And totally broken. And there's no way outside of redemptive grace that we can see the image and glory of God um, except for folks who've been redeemed. Um, and that's a perspective. I want to acknowledge it. And I will also want to say I have trouble following it because it doesn't square with my experiences. It doesn't square with seeing the gracious Hospitality and generosity, in Umkutaba. Uh, it doesn't square with the goodness of God that I see in creation, even outside of the church. Is creation broken? Yes. Are we broken? Yes. Are are we marred by our sin and our brokenness? Yes. We. I say yes to all of that. None of that negates the fact. And and uh, the the Hebrew writers, the um, the Old Testament writers, Isaiah. The angels around the throne, they knew all of that brokenness, and yet still they're able to say the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Uh, The world is broken, but if the grace of God is infused in the creation of God, it shouldn't surprise us if we see God at work in the margins outside of the people of God. All right, the final one. Oh no! I got one more point on this one. Just as a linchpin, um, what I find really fascinating is that the Bible, <laughs> the Bible, reflects common grace. Think about this way: this this pipes up in um, wisdom literature. So you know the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, Lamentation, no, lamentation is prophetic? Maybe no. Lamentation might be. Uh, uh, what's the other one? I think Job is a big one for wisdom lit. So in the in the book of Proverbs, this collection of proverbs, for instance, um, um, first of all, wisdom literature scholars will tell you there is remarkable similarity in the language and even the structure of these wisdom sayings and proverbs with ancient Near Eastern wisdom. Okay? There's lots of overlap and borrowing. What does that tell us? Well, there is wisdom in creation that can be observed and received by virtue of being a human being and opening yourself to God that's available without, um, like, special divine uh, revelation. Uh, So we see Proverbs borrowing. Not only that... But there's a really good chance that Proverbs 30 and the sayings of Agur are the sayings of a pagan king. (laughs) So here we have in the Bible. uh, The Bible is borrowing the wisdom of folks outside of the people of God, non-Jewish folks, and saying, we see God in this. Isn't that a trip? Go look that up. Uh, Okay, I thought that was too good to pass on. Sure. Okay, the final one that I want to share is what uh, liberation theologians would call God's preferential option for the <laughs> poor. Um, and it's it's a fancy way of saying um, God loves folks who are poor. God loves the poor. God loves folks at the economic margins. Um, and we see it throughout the Old Testament um, we see it in the prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures. We see it in the mantle that Jesus takes on in character and in sync with those Old Testament um, prophets. It conceives of salvation as liberation from uh, from oppression, salvation as as liberation from downtroddenness. I mean, we see it in the story of Israel. That salvation for Israel was being rescued from oppressive conditions, um, from being in bondage as slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. Their salvation was being able to get out of there, was being rescued from that. And notice that God gives them the law after he saves them. God gives them a way of life after he delivers them from Egypt. So I think that's a good case to say that the Old Testament is not works-based. Uh, there's so much grace in the Old Testament. It's grace that God does the Exodus stuff that he does. He gives the law after he saves. He gives the law as a response of obedience to the grace that he's already given to his people. I'm getting stuck. I'm going to keep moving. Sorry. It's 252. Uh, so God's preferential option. Israel is in poverty, they're oppressed, and God hears their cries, and he, he rescues this little nation, and he says, you know what, little nation, family of Abraham, you're going to be my treasured possession. Um, you are going to be my light to the rest of the nations of the world, Isaiah 49, so that the rest of the earth can see uh, my glory and my care, my great compassion and concern, also my judgment and righteousness and justice. Um, so the Exodus in Israel is a picture of that. Uh, and interestingly, look at this text, um, if you want, from Deuteronomy, um, which is, you know, Deuteronomy literally means second telling, second law. So it's, Mo- it's a second telling of the law of Moses before they move in, to the promised land after they've been wandering for 40 years. And um, Moses, God, is very inclined to be like, all right, it's a new generation. Don't forget what your parents learned and how they failed so that you don't repeat it. And that, that kind of roots us. Deuteronomy 10 in what, what he says here, verses 17 through 19 in particular. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, He's the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality. He cannot be bribed. He's not a corrupt leader. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing, so you too must show love to foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. So rooted in the very nature and character of God is passion, deep passion for folks at the margins, the, the economic margins. The categories here are orphans and widows and foreigners, immigrants, if you will. I mean, We see Jesus doing this very same thing um, when he comes into the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4. And it's his time to, uh, to share scripture and to talk about what he's doing. He quotes Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's, he's drawing on Isaiah 61, uh, this prophetic tradition that celebrates, you know, and to announce. The year of the Lord's favor, the great jubilee time, when when inequities will be set right, when when justice and peace and shalom will be restored for God's people, that's what's happening in my ministry. That's what's happening in my work. That's what I'm here for. Jesus ties in to this preferential option for the poor, which if the poor are... A margin or at the margins, an economic margin. That's where God goes. That's where He hangs out. That's what. That's what He does. That's. Um, that's what He's up to. Um, all right. So I've really plowed through some deep theological things. I'm curious for you all. Um, which of these caught your attention? What 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 has given you some new eyes, perhaps, to uh, with which to see? Um, scripture, the story of God, or God's work at the margins. What, what's grabbing your attention?
1: On your last point, God cares for the poor. Um, he doesn't necessarily change the physical situation. He changes their mental attitude. And, and the attitude is what enables them or us or whoever to, be, to accept our situation with the grace that He has given to us.
0: Yeah. I will say, um, absolutely, sometimes that's the truth. But we have to hold up against that The story of Israel And how God very much Delivers them From their oppressive situation
1: But not for 400 years
0: Sure, there is There is a long time Of waiting um, And groaning But it it is uh, It is the heart of God um, To deliver people From those situations And really if you think about The trajectory Of the Of the cosmos If what all of this is headed toward is the renewal and restoration of all things and everything being made right and the world being transformed to be a place of shalom and justice and peace where everyone lives in harmony, then any ways that we uh, address physical or social or systemic inequities, any ways that we do that anticipates um, the coming kingdom. Uh, it anticipates and lives into and implements the the direction in which everything is heading. Now, um, at the same time, um, you're exactly right. Things don't change overnight, and and they not and they may not uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't work toward it's those our ends. Attitude, but yes, that's right. Jesus reforms and reshapes our hearts into the midst of that so that the peace of the kingdom can arrive to us ahead of time, even when uh, we're in less than ideal circumstances. So Paul can say, I can be content mm-hmm. um, no matter the circumstance. It's his attitude. Yeah. So yes, I, I would say y- yes to that. Um, I want to say yes to, um, in the big picture, that, that God is at work to renew... Everything around us too, but it doesn't happen in the time frame. We hope it will sometimes.
3: Yeah, as when we think about God's preferential option for the poor, it, it, for God, it's a justice issue. It, it, it attitude is attitude, but it's more than just attitude. It's, it's, being. Yeah, it's, it, it's rightness, it's, and, it's wrongness, rightness yeah. and wrongness. It's about rightness and wrongness and defending the, the powerlessness yeah. of, of, the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it throughout the Old Testament and in the prophets, and sometimes people argue with me, well, we don't see it that much in the New Testament. And I'm telling this because the New Te- it's already assumed in the New Testament, because the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, Jesus is quoting it in the synagogue. Um, yes, and, yeah. and
3: a prime example uh, is Isaiah 58, where people wonder, well, I mean, we we fasted, so why aren't you paying attention to us? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And God rebukes them, <laughs> says, well, "This is the kind of fast. Now, yeah. here's the kind of fast I want. Yeah. Right. Do you feed the poor? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and for God, true fasting is all about how we treat the yes. powerless. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and and for God, I think it was an abomination for those who have been oppressed to in turn become oppressors, especially in their right. own in their own culture.
0: Right. Given their history and their experiences in Egypt. Exactly. And and they forget. Exactly. And they do the same things to others in their midst. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. One more comment. I would also say that, that God doesn't challenge the poor people to go get rich, but he challenges the rich people to give to the poor. Mm-hmm. And so that that redistribution does take place. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, that, that hand and hand is, is that we see in Acts 2, the, in Acts 4, where, okay, you have... Now if you are following me then you share and that is still preferential option for the poor and he's putting it on the onus of those who have and that is the challenge for me to give up my privilege and share it with those who do not.
1: But we all know that a lot of people who are poor never see that kind of, from anyone. So, if they can keep their attitude of looking forward.
2: But we get to give them yes. that hope as well. So
1: we're talking to one, one's giving, the other is receiving. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the receiving end, sometimes it's more difficult, I would think, to wait.
0: Hmm. Well, good
1: thoughts.
2: Can I add one little yep. comment to that? It, um, I, have, I have heard comments from people who are extremely poor who, the thing that we can give them, if, even if we can't take them out of their poverty, is their humanity back by treating them, looking them in the eye, yes. and saying hello, that's how are you. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's part of what we can do, even if we can't restore. Yeah. that this. that's a
0: great segue to uh, practices, which is what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Like, how do we engage in in helpful and meaningful meaningful and God honoring ways with folks at the at the margins? And one of them is simply looking at them in the eyes and acknowledging their humanity and giving them the dignity. Like, hey, I see you. You are a, you are a person to me. I care about you. You're my neighbor. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. That, that, the heart, that's the heart of God, for sure. Um, part of Mission Alive, we plant churches at the margins. Here's my info. If you want to get a hold of me, I'd love to have a conversation. If you're not able to today, thanks for being a part of the discussion. God bless you.